0: All right, good to see everybody this afternoon. Let's uh, turn in your hymnal. I don't recall offhand what page. 700. Does anyone remember? What's that? Chapter 3. 700. 672. 672. There we go. Turn to 672. page 672 in the Confession. We are on chapter 3, finishing up this afternoon, and we're going to focus on paragraphs 6 and 7. So let's read these paragraphs together. Chapter 3, paragraph 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so He hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of His will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ, by His Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. In paragraph 7, The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the Gospel. Let's pray before we come to uh, this time of instruction from our confession. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the Lord's Day, and we pray for Your strength and Your help as we come uh, to this afternoon uh, time of instruction. After lunch, we pray that You would Give us alert minds. Give us minds that hunger after Your truth. That hunger to understand better and more accurately how You have decreed to work all things after the counsel of Your own will. And we pray that we would understand these things carefully and with nuance, even as uh, paragraph 7 exhorts us to handle it with special prudence and care that we not ourselves be confused and walk in a way that is unworthy of Your Word, and that we might not confuse others. We pray that You would instruct us, give us good discussion. We thank You for all of Your mercies to us. We thank You for the fellowship of the saints and the church. Thank You for our newcomers. Thank You for how You continue to build Your church here, and You continue to build the work. We pray that You would continue to be gracious to us. We pray that we would walk in all humility, remembering that it is because of Your goodness to us. We pray that You would keep us always in remembrance of those things and cause us to walk in a lowly manner. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so, hopefully everyone's somewhat awake and had some coffee. Uh, actually, this afternoon, the the deeper stuff we've already handled, so this afternoon, it's not heavy like that, uh, but it is pastoral and practical and so, important for us to, to deal with these uh, paragraphs. So, as I said, we're going to finish up chapter 3. We'll move on to chapter 4 next time. And uh, we're focusing on paragraphs 6 and 7. Uh, and let's begin with paragraph 6. Paragraph 6 deals with the issue of means. Okay, um, if, if you can remember the last several months or a couple months that we've been looking at, looking at God's decree of predestination... We've seen that he has decreed all things whatsoever comes to pass after the counsel of his own will. Um, and if that doctrine of predestination is not carefully understood and carefully explained, people can draw unbiblical conclusions and they begin to think about predestination in a very cold, fatalistic fashion. Okay? Fatalism is essentially, just to give you a brief idea. Fatalism is basically the idea that what will be, will be regardless of action. my actions. okay? Um, there is a, I think, I can't remember if it's a Greek play, but it's something famous. Some of you might know it. But it's basically, I'll just say for the sake of the thing that it's a Greek play or something. There's this guy who finds out exactly the way and how he's going to die. And he spends his whole life with everything in him trying to do all that he can to make sure that those certain circumstances that would bring about his death can't happen. And in a twist of fate, at the end of the story, you realize that his, the very trying to avoid those things is what brought those things about, and so he meets his fate. That's, that's kind of the idea of no matter what I do, if I go this way or that way, I'm ultimately I'm just going to land here. Um, and what it does is it it disconnects means um, from their appointed end. And sadly, there have been strands of Calvinism that have embraced this sort of thinking. And so, I'll give you an example. Some of you will be familiar. Um, William Carey was a missionary, a uh, Baptist missionary. Uh, quite, a, quite a time before he ever went to India, he, uh, many pastors in his area and of his day were taken in by what we would call today hyper-Calvinism, okay? And um, it was just a controversy that was heated during that time. And hyper-Calvinism is a distortion of biblical Calvinism that takes some things that are true about God and His dealings, but then it runs with them with logic not aided by the Bible and it lands them in some very unbiblical conclusions, okay? And... Carry went to a pastor's meeting and um, he raised the question. This is the question he wanted to discuss. It was essentially this. Does God use means in the conversion of the heathen nations? In other words, everyone in that room, every pastor agreed that God had an elect people, that God would save His elect, but the question was, does God just kind of unilaterally save His elect or is the church one of the means by which... God saves the elect. And when Carey said he wanted to discuss this, one of the elderly pastors, respected pastors, stood up and said to him, young man, sit down. When God wants to convert the heathen, He'll do it without your help or my help. Okay? That gives you an idea of kind of a fatalistic hyper-Calvinism. Um, that is an example of what it doesn't look like as chapter seven, or paragraph 7 here says, that's what it doesn't look like to handle this doctrine with special care and prudence. Um, but many Christians, especially those new to Reformed theology, are often liable to fall into this, kind, this way of thinking. And for instance, someone's a new Christian or they're at least new to Reformed theology and they, they get a glimpse of, like, of how big God's sovereignty is. They see it all over every page of the Bible. They're excited about that. They love that. And and that's a good thing. But then they can unwittingly begin to overemphasize God's sovereignty and turn it into a fatalistic sovereignty as though God doesn't also appoint the means of saving His elect. Um, One one of my former pastors would uh, say often that his biggest concern for people who are new to Calvinism was not that they would fall back into Arminianism, but that they would fall into hyper-Calvinism. And I, I think that's right. I think that's much more common. Um, so for, I'll give you some examples. Sometimes Christians say things like, "You know, I just don't think there's any, any use in me talking to my dad about the gospel. If God's going to save him, God's going to have to do it, right? If he's one of the elect, God will save him." Um, or in the Christian life, a Christian grows weary and tired of fighting the same sinful pattern they've just been fighting over and over, and they kind kind of finally just give up. For the moment and they say, you know what, if I'm going to get victory over this, God is just going to have to do it for me. Um, or a Christian leaves off the means of grace. So a Christian stops reading their Bible, meditating, they stop praying, they stop um, attending corporate worship, and yet at the same time, they're, they're frustrated and they're asking God, Lord, why does it feel like you're so distant from me and why does it feel like I'm having such a hard time walking with God? What all of those things have in common is they have separated God's predestining the end from the means that He also predestines to achieve that end. Okay? So, I'll take those examples. In one sense, is it true that if your dad is among the elect, he will be saved? Yes, that's true. But is he going to be saved apart from the Gospel? No, God's going to, if your dad is a part of the elect, God's going to save him through the proclamation of the Gospel. Because that's the means God has given for His elect to be drawn in. Um, What was the second example I gave? Um, Yes, sanctification. Is it true that sanctification is something God does to His people? Yes. But that doesn't mean that, okay, I just kind of sit and wait for God to zap me, right? Rather, Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. Um, So the means of our being sanctified... Is that, or if the end is us being sanctified, the means is that God has given us commands to actually pursue sanctification, right? Um, same thing with assurance. Is God the one who gives assurance? Yes. But He usually gives assurance through the means of grace He's appointed by which we get assurance, right? So if you're not reading your Bible, you're not praying, you're not attending corporate worship, you're not doing the means and therefore shouldn't be surprised you're not receiving the end of assurance. Does that make sense? The connection of those things? So, um, the confession here doesn't want us to separate these things. So, paragraph 6, we'll jump in. It opens as God... And I'll do some on-the-fly modern English translation. As God has appointed the elect unto glory. Okay, That's our ultimate destination. Right? We will be with Christ in glory. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so He has by the eternal and most free purpose of His will foreordained all the means thereunto. So, um, the Confession doesn't use this proof text, but I think it's a good place to start biblically. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to these. Romans 10, verses 14-15. through Um, Paul says, Romans 10-14, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach unless they are sent okay so paul has just said in verse 13 that whoever calls on the name of the lord will be saved but he knows they can't call on the one whom they haven't believed right and they can't believe in the one whom they've never heard of whom they've never heard and they can't be heard without a preacher. And preachers can't preach without the preachers being sent. Right? So, for Paul, who we know believes in particular election, because he's just written chapter 9, right? this is Romans 10, he believes that God has mercy on whom He will have mercy, and yet he knows that God isn't going to give that mercy apart from the means that God has appointed to give that mercy. Um. He says that the way the elect are going to be saved is by the church first sending preachers, right? Then those preachers preaching, listeners hearing, listeners then believing, and listeners then calling on the name of the Lord, right? Um, so Paul is heavily predestinarian in his theology, but he's not a fatalist in his theology. Um, he doesn't just say, like that elderly pastor, God's going to save the heathen without your help or my help. Rather, Paul is like William Carey. No, we need to go into the nations and bring the Gospel to the heathen because that's the means God has appointed for the elect to be brought in. And so that's the the general idea. But then the Confession elaborates on some, it's not exhaustive, but some of the particular means that God ordains for the salvation of His people. And so we'll just somewhat briefly make our way through these and then look at paragraph 7. So, confession's already established. God's not only appointed the end of glory, He's appointed all the means that will lead the saints to glory, and now it elaborates on some of those. Wherefore, they who are elected... Now, when did election happen? Eternity passed, right? Being fallen in Adam... So that's explaining why we need these means. We are alienated from God by nature. Number one, are redeemed by Christ... Now, we don't often think of Christ as a means. And there's a, there's a good and a bad way you could mean that. If you merely say Christ is a means to an end. But in, in this sense, they're stressing what needs to be stressed. What is the first means necessary if anyone's going to be saved? God has to provide a Savior, right? Um, and so the first means of anyone's salvation is that God gives Christ to be Redeemer. Redeemer. And by giving Christ, I mean everything that's involved. His his incarnation, His sinless life, His death, His resurrection, all of that. Um, No one would be saved if that never happened, right? Um, Because God has decreed only to save in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if the cross didn't happen, no humans are making it to glory. But then it it goes on not only did Christ have to come and actually accomplish redemption objectively for us, God then needed to apply that redemption to us by His Spirit. And so it goes on, are effectually called unto faith in Christ. So this is another means, and this is a precursor to chapter 10. We'll get to chapter 10 sometime on effectual calling. Those whom God has elected... um, He has predestined that Christ would redeem them, and he predestined that through the Word of the Gospel, his Spirit would work in their lives, make them alive, and and draw them to Christ. And notice it's an effectual calling here, unto faith. So, what is the instrument God has appointed for a sinner to have union with Christ? It's faith and nothing else, lest any man should boast, right? And so that's another means. The Spirit not only has to make us alive, but also give to us the gift of faith, which then unites us to Christ. And it goes on, it says, by His Spirit working in due season are justified, adopted, and sanctified. I'm not going to talk about each of those individually, but I'll just say some some broad comments. Is anyone going to make it to heaven who has not been justified, adopted, and sanctified? No, right? you show up on Judgment Day and you haven't had your sins washed away and Christ's righteousness applied to you, that's a problem, right? Um, Hebrews tells us, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. could be translated, pursue sanctification, right? Um, And so God has appointed that all three of those blessings would be given to the believer by Christ through His Spirit upon our believing so that we... Are fit for heaven and are fit for glory, and he assures that therefore all who have been uh, predestined to the end of eternal life and glory will experience all three of these: justification, adoption, and sanctification. Next, and kept by his power, kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Now, that's a really important line. Um, Within that little statement, both you have both the doctrine of preservation and the doctrine of perseverance. Okay, we are kept by God's power through faith, right? Um, kept by God's power through faith. So, the confession here is not describing just a crass um, once saved always saved. And I'll, I'll say, describe what I mean by that. A lot of times, what people—and I'm hesitant to say Christians because usually these are Carnal people who just you know have a have a false assurance of being in Christ. But oftentimes when people say that, you know, once saved, always saved, what they mean is this idea that, you know, I I professed Christ, or I profess Christ. That means I'm part of the elect. And so it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter if I renounce the faith tomorrow, it doesn't matter if I go headlong into heretical doctrine, it doesn't matter if I stop fighting sin and I just give into it, I'm going to heaven. Right? That that's often people's view of, uh, uh, what do you call that, Uh, eternal security, right? Now, what's the problem with that? Well, once again, that view is disconnecting the end of eternal life from the means God has appointed for the elect to get to the end, right? What the confession is describing here is not a it-doesn't-matter-what-I-do mentality, but rather it's holding the important balance of I will make it to glory because God keeps me by his power. That's preservation. But God's keeping me actually looks like something in my life, right? So it's not that I'll be saved no matter what I do, it's that I will be saved because God will continue to pour out oil on the flame of my faith. Um, God, I will make it to glory because God will keep me from apostasy, right? I will make it to glory because God will keep me from heretical damning doctrine, and He will keep me from um, completely throwing in the towel on fighting sin and running towards the celestial city. Right. So we we should we need to we ought to have that view of perseverance and preservation. It's not just this disconnected; the end is disconnected from the means. But it's no, we will get there because God works these things in us because these are the appointed means by which. Christians make it to glory. And then this last uh, statement in paragraph 6, "...neither are any, any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only." And basically what the confession is making explicit here is that God has appointed these means to the elect and to the elect alone. And the elect will certainly experience these means which lead to their end, eternal life. And what it's also saying is that the reason that others are not saved is because God has not only appointed them to glory, the end, but He has also not appointed them to experience these means of the Spirit's work, faith, justification, and so on. So let's next turn to our, the last paragraph, paragraph 7. And uh, when we're done, we can... If, if there are any questions, we can have time for discussion. So, paragraph 7. The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. Now, you know that something is liable to being mishandled if the writers of the confession decided to write a whole paragraph on cautioning not, not to make that mistake and to handle it with prudence and care, Right? "...that men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election." Okay. You might read that and that might not immediately make sense. I'm going to try to break it down. It's honestly not difficult once you realize the purpose of this paragraph. Uh, It is really pastorally significant. And and not just for pastors, but for you in in ministering to other people. And I think you'll see why. Um, here in paragraph 7, in particular, what the authors are concerned about is they are concerned that people not look to the wrong place to be assured of their election. Okay? Notice it says, that men attending to the will of God revealed in His Word. You see that? And yielding obedience thereunto. Okay. little... Um, sidebar thing here, okay? There are two ways that the Bible speaks of the will of God, right? And that's reflected in our confession. Even in this chapter, both uses are used. Um, for instance, paragraph 5, if you're looking at the confession, use the term, the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will. Okay? Now, that is obviously a reference to what we call the decretive will of God, or His sovereign willing of whatsoever comes to pass, right? So, on the one hand, we speak of God's will of decree. Sometimes His secret, will, and it's got other names. Um, what we're talking about when we talk about God's decretive will is what will be. It's what God has determined this will certainly come to pass. Okay. Here's the thing, though. The reason it's called His secret will sometimes Is because that will of God is not revealed to us unless it's told us in the scriptures or until providence reveals it. Right? So, for instance, um, I know that tomorrow God has either decreed that I will live or I will die. Right? It's one of the two. But I don't know which one will actually come to pass until tomorrow passes, right? Because it belongs to God's secret will, He knows what He's decreed to come to pass. But He hasn't revealed that to me. Um, that, so here, here's why, why that's important. Um, let me see. Went off my notes for too long. have got to find myself. So here, here's an example of why it's a problem if Christians try to peer into God's secret decree to learn something. Let's say someone has been a faithful Christian for 20 years. They've borne the fruit of Christian grace in their lives. Their, their lives are changed. They've clearly ordered their, pat- their, their lives after the pattern of God's Word. And all of a sudden, 20 years into their um, walk with God, they start coming. Let's say they start coming to Bethany Baptist Church and they start hearing about this predestination thing. And election, and God has a particular people He chose from before the foundation of the world. They've never even heard that before. They've read the word in the Bible, but never heard it explained the way we believe it. What can happen is instead of them being comforted, and man, God chose me from before the foundation of the world, is suddenly they can have their assurance actually rocked, and their confidence rocked, because they start to think to themselves, I've I believe I believed in Christ and, and I think that I've got the fruit of grace in my life and I have a love for the Lord and His people, but I'm reading this election business and I'm scared, what if I'm not among the elect? Right? And I, I wish God would just show me whether or not I'm on the list. right? Whether I'm elect. Or I'll give you a, another example on the flip side. A non-Christian. You can have a non-believer who is Under conviction, is realizing that he's a rotten sinner, he's heard of the graciousness of Christ, the freeness of Christ, and yet then he starts reading about this election and reprobation stuff, and he concludes, I must be among the reprobate. I can't come to Christ because I'm not among the elect. Now what's the problem with both of those? Both of those people are looking to the wrong place to be assured of their election. The Christian is wanting something other than the Bible to know, Lord, can You reveal to me Your secret will? Am I on the list or not? Even though she's got the fruits of grace in her life. And the unbeliever is doing the same thing of thinking he can know the secret will of God that he's reprobate and using that as an excuse for why he can't come to Christ. That's what the confession is trying to warn against here. God reveals, He makes, to use Peter's language, He makes our calling and election sure by, as the confession says, us attending the will of God revealed in His Word, and attending or and yielding obedience thereunto. So that's the second way we talk about God's will, is his will of command, right? What he there's God's sovereign will of what will come to pass, and then there's God's will of command. In which he tells us what we ought to do, what we are responsible for, what he expects of us. And it's by attending upon God's revealed will, his will of command, and yielding obedience to it that we then come to an assurance of election, right? For instance, what does the word tell us to do in order to be saved? Believe in Christ, right? Okay? So now I ask myself the question, well, have I obeyed that? Have I believed in Christ? If not, I ought not to have any assurance of my election. If I have, okay, that's good. Now, what does the Bible say a genuine Christian looks like? Well, do I have those fruits in my life? Um, Do I love God? Do I obey God? Do I fight sin? If so, I can be assured of my election. So, Here's the point. We know our election by the fruits election produces in us. Okay? In other words, we know our election as a secondary fruit of knowing the fruits of election, which are faith, union with Christ, holiness, justification, all those things. Right? Um, Deuteronomy 29.29 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Um, So, um, it finishes out, just one more paragraph and we'll be done here. It finishes out, and so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the Gospel. Notice it does not provide, it does not afford those things to those who do not sincerely obey the gospel. But to all those who love the Lord in sincerity, it lists several things. It affords the matter for praise, because my being in Christ as an heir of eternal life is owing to God's election. That's a matter for praise and thanksgiving. Reverence and admiration of God because God is the one who shows mercy to whom He shows mercy. Humility because 2 Corinthians 4-7, what do I have that I did not receive? Right, Election teaches us that in a very profound way. Diligence because it is God who is at work within me and will not give up on the work of His hands. Because He is at work, I must be at work and abundant consolation because I was not the cause of my election and therefore I cannot be the cause of God failing to bring about its end eternal life and glory. So, let me let me stop there and open it up for questions if we if we have anything to discuss or anything. I know kind of a flyover quick view. So, questions on God's decretive will versus His revealed will. Um, paragraph six, the issue of means. I don't know if anyone, if any of those thoughts struck certain chords, and brought to mind questions or clarifications or anything like that. Aaron?
1: Yeah, well, it just reminds me so much of the issues of cage-stage Calvinism that we see so often where someone comes into these doctrines and starts to think, I need to figure out if someone's elect or not before I preach the gospel to them, or I need to figure out if they're elect by how I preach the gospel to them, or I need to preach election as part of the gospel to them, Mm -hmm. right? And it's true, the good news of the gospel does include that God actually saves people, but the, good, the, the gospel does not require understanding the doctrine of election before he can be saved, mm-hmm. before he can trust in Christ. And so I think that idea, understanding that as the secret will of God, election operates invisibly to us yep. until we see its fruits, yep. allows us to return to the simplicity of the gospel, that we can return to the simplicity of proclaiming the gospel, calling on every lost sinner to repent and to trust in the name of Christ so that they will be saved. That all who trust in the name of the Lord will be saved. And that simplicity of of the true, open, genuine gospel call is preserved. Um, And and it's so important. And I think it's astonishing to me to think that way back in 1689, the uh, the formers of our confession would have that in mind, would be aware of that danger, and would set this safety rail for us that we would not wander off into that danger.
0: Yeah, yeah. Waldron, in his commentary on the 16:89, has a whole paragraph devoted to why we never obey the secret will of God; we obey the revealed will of God, right? Because the secret will, again, is not made known to us until that point in time happens, right? We we obey God based on what He has revealed that He requires of us. So, to your point even if someone doesn't understand how election and the free offer of the Gospel work, always still just obey God. (laughs) He told you to preach the Gospel to every creature, right? So even if you don't understand how that works yet, go with that rather than bad logic that silences the Bible. You know what I mean? So yeah, definitely good points.